You are listening to What It's Like with Luce, a podcast highlighting ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I'm your host, Lucy Norris, and on today's episode, I'm chatting to Irish broadcaster and host of RTE Radio 1's Liveline. Finding his passion for conversation through his early work as a social worker, radio had been a huge part of his life for as long as he could remember. Coming across a newspaper ad for a producing training scheme at Ireland's National Broadcaster, he jumped at the chance and dove straight into what would become his new world. Beginning as a producer on The Pat Kenny Show, it wasn't long before the ambitious young talent found himself being called up to work alongside Gay Byrne, and well, it all kicked off from there. Landing Liveline, gaining a reputation as the man of the people, dabbling in TV work and penning three books are just some of the experiences today's guest has encountered. Sharing his journey, here's what it's like to be Joe Duffy. Before we get stuck into the episode, I just wanted to say that if there is a drop in sound quality throughout, I'm very sorry. But in respect of social distancing during COVID-19, I've had to record episodes remotely. In this challenging time, we're all trying our best, so I really hope everyone is staying safe and that you enjoy the episode. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting with me today. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it would be a nice idea to go all the way back and just discuss a little bit about your experiences growing up and where that interest in broadcast came from, because I know you went into social work for a bit and advertising before that. So um, can you just talk me a little bit through what your experiences were like growing up? Well, in terms of broadcasting, we always had a radio in the house and the radio, people find it hard to believe this, but the radio was actually up on a stand on the wall, little braiding underneath it, red braiding. So it was kind of the centerpiece, the centerpiece, it was a big old fashioned radio. It was this, this in the 1960s and 70s. So it was the centerpiece of the room. And I loved radio, my father loved radio. Um, and then we were late coming to television um, people, again, my children find all this hard to believe. The first television we got, I'd say, would be around 1966, and it was a, a slot TV. It was mostly, in those days, it was mostly rent telly. People used to rent their telly because they were so expensive. Telly rents, uh, RTV rentals. And one of the ways they, they rented them was to use a coin so you wouldn't have a bill at the end of the week or whatever. Bizarre, bizarre, crazy in this day and in that day and age even. So there was a lot of, my father was an avid newspaper reader. He got a newspaper every single day and he was very up in current affairs and my mother less so, but my father was very up in current affairs and discussing things. So that's where that I, and then I, when I was in Trinity, um, I got involved in the student union. We ran a magazine and they're interested in media and broadcasting. Now I did go into social work, obviously. Uh, became a probation officer for five years, but even... Even in my probation office, which was in the city centre, I was the only one in the building who had a radio in the office because I used to listen to Gay Bourne every morning and um, and shout at the radio and give out to the radio and whatever at the radio. So I always had a, I have, I have an incredible love of radio. I, mean, I don't listen to radio. I monitor radio 24-7. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I just put my earpiece in. I have the BBC World Service on. I'm listening to a lot of uh, American radio lately because of Trump, WNYC radio is a great station. Um, I just love, I just love the intimacy of radio. I love the flexibility, the accessibility, the fact that you can read or paint the house or paint a, a watercolor while you're listening to the radio. I just love it as a medium. Whereas television wouldn't be, but radio is my number one by far. And so then when it came time to 
um, deciding what you wanted to do when you went to college after school. Um, why did you decide to go and study social work as opposed to something? Because I've been doing a summer, I've been doing a summer project in Ballymore working with children. And I always had an interest in helping other people, so to speak. So I was doing, uh, when I was working in advertising, I used every summer I took off and I used to run a summer project in Ballymore in the flats. And I just really liked that. And I remember just hanging around with other people who were running other summer projects. And quite a number of them were social workers. So I just decided I wanted to try. Didn't know how to become a social worker. Then discovered you had to go to Trinity and do four years or whatever. And um, yeah, I just, I, I know people say, some people say, oh, you're only a do-gooder. But I'd rather be a do-gooder than a do-badder. That's what I like about social work. And I like, I, I became a qualified social worker, got a master's in social work then qualified as a family therapist, one of the first in Ireland. So I've always been interested in discourse and talking to people and trying to help people. And then after about four years, I saw a, and I wasn't married at this stage, Lou, so I saw an ad for a training course in RT as a producer. And I just liked the idea of it. And I applied for that. And um, I got on, I was lucky enough to get on the training course. But I remember there was hundreds applied for it. I think 12 people were, were on the course, but I remember, and it's something that I say to people now, before I did the interview, I tried to find out who else would be interviewed. And I discovered there'd be people who are already working in radio or newspapers or whatever. And I remember going in and, and referencing that right at the start. Listen, I'm not a journalist. I don't work in newspapers. I've never been working in radio, but what I can bring is a different experience. And that's what I started talking about, where I was from, the social work element, the social work contacts, the advertising, the Ballymore. I just tried to sell them my difference. And I reckon if you're taking in 12 or 13 people, they might take they might take a gamble on someone that's totally different. A totally different background, that's what I went for. And then so when you did enter RTE, considering you, like you said, you didn't have a background in um, broadcast <clears throat> or anything like that. Do you remember what that experience was like initially? Terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. I remember, I think, on the first day of the training course, they handed me and everybody a tape recorder and a microphone and a headset, and you were told to go. And And I remember I, I was so fr- I went home and I cried. I was so frightened of the... I had no experience in it. But anyway, I said it to someone yesterday who walked. It's, it was his first day in the program. I said, Dave, now remember, the first day is always the worst day because you don't know anybody. You don't know where anything is. You don't know where the blues are you don't know how to work machinery but after that i really i really loved it i really loved it do you remember kind of maybe what it was that kept you going back every day considering how scary it was in those first few weeks when you had such a solid career in social work um already fixed there because i was learning every day i was learning something new every day it was completely new world and i just love i I think i i often say to people who are fed up or whatever i said you know, I know waking up in the morning is, can be tough for people who suffer from depression, but I remember saying to some people, like, remember all the new things you're going to see today, the new music you might hear, the new people you might meet, the new words you might learn, the new pictures you might see, the new whatever. There's always something new. So I just love the idea of learning something new every day. And then when you were, so you went in as a producer, is that right? Or off the, off yeah. the, training, the training scheme, you became a producer. Oh, oh, and then I think it's really nice how it kind of went full circle to you working with Gaber and considering how much yeah, you were yeah, listening yeah. to his show. So how did that come about and what was that experience like? Because I was producing, I was producing the Pat Kenny show. 
person outside broadcast from London, I think. And I happened to bump, I would have known Gay from walking around the building. And the following day, I just literally bumped into Gay in the corridor. He said, who produced that program from London yesterday? And I said, me. And he didn't say that, and he just said he enjoyed it or whatever. And then about a week later, I got a request from my boss to move on to the Gay Bourne Show team. And the program I was on, the Pat Kenny Show, was regarded as hard news. And uh, Gay Bourne Show at that time had been regarded as a much lighter program. And I know, I know my fellow producers on the Pat Kenny Show were weren't overly enthusiastic about me moving. But like the opportunity to work with Gay comes along once in a lifetime. And I jumped on her. I jumped on her. Best thing I ever did. Yeah, and which which do you prefer, working with um, hard news or more more soft news? See, that's what I love about live line. It's a mix. Yeah. All our lives are mixed. All our interests are mixed anyway. Um, but I, I love the mix. I love I don't think I, I don't think I could do hard news all the time. I don't think I could do light all the time. And that's one because I don't have great concentration. The thing I love about Liveline is you know where it's going to start, but you have no idea where it's going to end. You know, you know what your force call is, but you don't know which which way it's going to take off, so to speak. That's the joy of it, the excitement of it. After you, so you signed on with Gabriel and you were working with him, doing a bit of reporting mm. for him. When did you notice the shift where you started to become? A name in yourself and your own brand. Yeah, but again, again, Luce, that's down to Gay. I remember one day, we didn't have a reporter on the programme. I remember one day someone phoned in about some issue and we were sitting as we normally did every day after the programme, having a cup of coffee or whatever, and Gay said, well, why don't you go out? And the mobile phones had just arrived. They were the big bricks of a mobile phone, big grey bricks, or, or else a big carrier bag, like a car battery. And um, and he said to me, the only, I said, okay, I'm not a reporter. You know, I'm not, I haven't He said, you're not going out as a reporter. You're going out and we'll have the conversation the way we have a conversation after the program every day, a bit of banter, a bit of laugh. And that's that's how it started. And then I remember I, my first broadcast was from Malahide and it was funny enough. I think it was funny and it was on, I don't know whether you know the program on Saturday morning, there was the highlights called Playback. It's the playback, the highlights of the week. And I was on selling the clip, but I was introduced as Joe Egan. Presented didn't even know who I was. So I, I, I wouldn't lose a run of myself. And, and you don't you don't lose a run of yourself in Ireland, especially in radio, I think, I hope. So then I guess you started to do a bit more things as Joe Duffy yourself. Um, yeah. Obviously now you're doing Liveline, which is a huge show. So how did you make that jump from being under Gay Byrne to being the host mm-hmm. of Liveline? Uh, it wasn't it wasn't easy. Um, Gay decided around 1998 that he well 1997 that he wanted to slow down a bit. So he decided uh, the deal with RT was he would do three days a week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, because he was doing the late late show on a Friday night. So they needed someone to do the two days, and they wanted to keep. So I was a reporter, so they gave it to me, and that lasted a year. And then they put someone else in, and I was moved on to as a reporter in another program, which was a big drop for me in terms of morale or whatever. And um, then I got an opportunity as a stand-in for Marion when she was, God rest her, when she was on her holidays. And um, that was 1998. And I remember, tragically, it was, it was, it was lots of trouble, but there was the, the big incident in 1998 was the Oma bombing in August of that year. And I remember the bombing happened, as you know, on a Saturday. And I was doing the program, obviously, on the Monday. I've been doing it. 
But what what I what I did was I travelled up to Oma that Saturday evening or Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning, I think it was, just to see, just to be there, just to see, just to walk. I spoke to the firemen and the fire women who walked on that, and just to get a sense of the enormity of the atrocity, the enormity of it. And I went well, like I went back to Dublin on Sunday night, but I did. I think I brought a passion to the program that week and we had incredible calls from people who were involved in the bombing, obviously survived the bombing, were related and then who did it and why was it done. So I remember that that was, that was and I, I know that week impressed my boss. So when Marion moved on to fill in for Gay, when Gay retired, um, they asked me to do the Marion slot. Now the, the great thing for me was, Luz, that when I knew the focus wouldn't be on me moving to the afternoon, the focus will be on Marion moving into Gay Bourne slot. So I said, that, that gives me great cover. I, you know, the focus will not be on how's Joe doing or what's his numbers. And I just I just start working on it and, and that was it. And after a while, you find your voice and I've been doing it for a while now. The other thing that really interests me about you and what I like about you is you're never afraid to stand behind something you believe in or speak out on something mm. despite having the pressures of being such a huge personality. Was there ever any time during your career when you were growing and you were trying to establish yourself mm-hmm. that you felt maybe a pressure to walk the line a bit more, hold back on your thoughts to get certain jobs or anything like that? No, and in fairness for RTE, there's, there's, they are good, even though the government and the cabinet decides which is really unusual. The cabinet decide the exact amount of the license fee. And as you know, they haven't increased the license fee in nearly 20 years. And I spoke to a few cabinet ministers who, was, who would be supportive of RTE and said, like, the animosity towards RTE, because RTE is, we have to ask hard questions. That's our job. But the animosity towards RTE around the cabinet table, they all take it, they all take hard interviews individually. And they say, no way are we giving that share uh, an extra penny or whatever. Which is really, which is really an unfair way to determine the license fee. It really is. Um, and but in fairness to RTE, I've never, ever, ever um, been told. Oh, listen, you go easy on the government. The license fee is critical, or whatever. In fact, one of the bravest, and I learned this from Gay when I was a producer on Gay Born Show before I became a reporter. It was the time of Century Radio, and uh, Ray Bork, who was the minister for communications subsequently was sent to prison and other items but Ray Borker's minister for communications he introduced he was he proposed to introduce uh this was a help century we didn't know this at the time because he was going to introduce 2FM would become an Irish station that's Gaelic and he would dr- dramatically limit the advertising time on RTE radio and I remember getting a call from uh, someone in RTE one of my bosses so will you go down and um, find out what Gay is going to say at the top of the program about Ray Bork and this, all these plans? And I said, I'll go down. And um, I, I, by the way, you know, I heard what he was saying. What he was saying was, ask Gay not to mention Ray Bork. Because I, I think there was a big meeting that day in RTE. And um, I said, Gay, I'm just saying to you, I've been told that you're to stay away from Ray Bork. And... Um, he opened the program with the most blistering attack on Ray Borg I've ever heard. He really, and he was, he was not, not, not only was, was he right on the day, but he was totally vindicated. Um, he went with his instincts. He knew something was, something smelt here and he went with it. And, and by the way, no one ever came back to me to give out to me or anything. So Gay was brave. Now you don't be, you, you, there's a difference between bravery and recklessness. You don't, you don't attack people. Like I say, we're not, 
we're not politicians, we're not social workers. Our job is to make a program that people will listen to and stay listening to and keep coming back day after day. So I just, I say to people, don't, you know, we've no agendas. There's no agenda here to be anti this or anti that. Or it's live line more so than any other program is driven by its listeners. I think it's no secret to everyone that you're loved by so many people in the country and, and your program is almost like a safe haven for some people to call into. So what do you think it is about you, Joe, that makes people feel so connected to your show and connected to you as a host? Well, it's very nice of you to say that. Um, because because I don't, I don't, I try and use my own voice. I try not, I try not to contrive positions just to get people calling in. I'm, I, we, I'm really privileged in live line that people still call in. We've no problem ever, ever, ever getting phone calls. Every day we go in, there's either emails or messages or texts. Um, so we're lucky in that sense that we don't have to goad people to, to get them to ring in or whatever. And I just, I think people, I think radio is a really transparent medium. I think people can see your ears or if someone is a fake. And what did WC Field say? If you can... Uh, if you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. Well, I can't fake sincerity. I just either do sincerity and people either believe it or don't. Yeah, that, that is so true. And I think, well, obviously people believe in you and believe what you're saying. Remember this, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a frontline worker. I'm not a fireman. They're, they, they're much more important roles in society than I ever had. You know what I mean? But I, you're I, a mouthpiece for people. I yeah, feel- and maybe during the pandemic that was highlighted more, wasn't it? Mm. Like our first call on coronavirus, we got a first call at the in the middle of January. This was January, two months before the lockdown. And it was from a Chinese restaurant who was really upset that people were, by, were, were staying away from his restaurant because of the China virus, as it was being called. Yeah. But from that day on, I think that was around January 27th, from that day on to this week, every single programme has mentioned or done coronavirus. Everything, that's about 120 programs. Now that's unprecedented that you would have. And even the day we did normal people, that, that debate about normal people, coronavirus was mentioned that day, believe it or not. He said coronavirus was the, he was anti-normal people. Coronavirus was God's punishment for uh, fornication, as he says. We did five programs a week, 75 minutes live, all totally live. We don't have any report, reporters or pre-records or inserts. And uh, we've done 120 programs on the trot up to today. And, um, and I'm so glad that I was able to do them. And the team led by Rebecca Meehan, they really got it. They really connected with people. And we, you know, we were doing people who were in great distress when people were dying in, in big numbers in April and May, doing really, trying to, get a, trying to get a sense to people across to others of how serious this virus was and wash your hands and all the protocols, trying to social distance. And the, the best way you can get that across is by them hearing the, the ordeals and experiences of other people. Moving slightly away from radio as well, you're also an author. Um, I believe you've written three books. Can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to go into that and the topics that you wanted to write on? One, because I love books. And my earliest memories are in the little converted shop in Ballyfermot that was a library. I can still smell the books. I can still see the books. I can still see the uh, older librarian sitting there in his tweed jacket with his leather pads and he was smoking a pipe. We didn't have books in the house. I just remember getting our books by Dervier Moore. But anyway, I, I was asked then um, in one of my 50s, well, this is 10 years ago now, would I write um, my autobiography, which I did. And I enjoyed doing that. 
And then by accident after that, I was doing a, a painting uh, of an Easter egg for the Jack and Jill Foundation, the charity thing. Mm -hmm. And um, they were going to display it at Easter 2013. And I was looking for ideas, you know, I'm, I'm to paint, I do a bit of painting. I couldn't find any idea with the egg and with Bono's hair, you know, all that stuff. But anyway, and then I, I said to myself, oh, hang on a minute, it's the Jack and Jill Foundation, that's sick children. It's going to go on display at Easter. Easter to me in Ireland is the commemoration, and always was, the commemoration of the Easter Rising. I said, how many children were injured in the Easter Rising, if any? Because I'd never heard of it mentioned, never. And I went down to the library in Pierce Street and I met a guy called, a great guy called Hugh Comerford, senior librarian there. And I just started yapping to you. Hugh knows everything. And first of all, you could tell me there was four, there been, there's now a thousand. There was 500 books written on the Easter Rising up to 2013. And he said he, he could only remember one mention of one child. And the child was, was uh, shot down in uh, Moor Street. And then I, I said, so I, so I then had the idea, I don't know how I got this idea, of going through the newspapers, the Evening Herald in particular, for April and May 1917, not 1916, 1917, to see whether any in memoriams to children who had been killed, because they'd usually say, Bridget McCain died tragically Easter week. And then I found about, 15 more children okay so then i happened to mention on the radio is doing this and then someone else contacted a few relatives oh yeah or see the problem with the children project is children don't have children obviously so the direct line of communication is gone you know you say you will know about you will know more about your grandfather loose than you know about your granduncle yeah especially if you especially if your granduncle died when he was seven Mm -hmm. So the, the memories were being lost. So I just I, I gradually chipped away, went up to, to death certs, and I found 40 children, and I did it on the egg. Then someone said, what are the stories? And then I said, well, I'm going to write your stories. And that's what I did. I just wanted to memorialize them. It took them 100 years to be remembered, which is incredible, because they were 40 citizens. They, they, they were the children of the revolution in that sense. And so, and I just loved that. And then about two years, then I realized that 100 years was too late to wait to do memorial to children because you were you were looking for contacts and then I said uh, it was coming up to August 2019 and it was a 50 years of the big that marked the 50 years since, since the first person was shot in the troubles and remember the third person to be shot in the troubles was a child Patrick Rooney and I said um I said to him I said now is the time to do children of the troubles the children that were killed to memorialize and I realized the book that type of book, the big hardback book, really well produced by Hachette, that was really, uh, really important. And that's why I did Children of the Troubles with Freya McLemans. That's my three books so far. Do you think you have any more books in you? I'm trying to write a crime novel. Oh. About the, about the crash, but it'll be a crime if it's ever published. It's so bad. It's oh, so bad. why is it bad? <laughs> I, keep, I keep getting characters, I'm trying to get characters to be consistent and I want, one, I want one character, obviously, to be really nasty, but I need a lot of help. I need a lot of instruction in terms of how to work. It's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And so then another question I had, no one can predict the future, but um, mm. if you did have to look into the next few years, do you still see yourself 
being very heavily involved in radio. Is there anything else that you particularly want to do in media or anything like that? No, I'm very, very, I'm very happy in radio and RTE generally. I do uh, some television projects as well, live line callbacks. It's still actually it's on at the minute again, being repeated. No, I, still, I, I suppose the main thing you worry about is health and the world we live in and the coronavirus. And, but the main thing you worry about is health. So if I have my, like, I used to, I get up, at, if I can, at six o'clock every morning. I remember someone saying to me, why do you get up at six o'clock every morning? I said, because I can it's simple as that. A lot of people can't, physically can't. And I said, it's, uh, I continue walking, one, because I love it, and two, because I can. I can. That's my motto. The other thing that um, I would be really interested to hear from you is if you had the chance to do over everything again, do you think that you would mm. do anything differently? No, no. I probably I might have gone to college and tried to go to college earlier if I'd known about it. I was three, three, four years working in an advertising agency before I decided to go to college. But the main reason is when I did my leaving cert and then at our school, they, we just weren't old about college. We were all destined for much lower things in that sense. So I, I, I would have said, because I love education, I would have, I think, oh yeah, I think that's a big regret that I didn't go to third level when I was 17, 18. Well, you've certainly done fine for yourself since then. <laughs> um, do you have a personal definition of what success would look like for you? No, I don't. I just being here and being able to look after your family and give them, you know, help them if they need it. Um, no, it's, I came from a I came from a background where you know success was, you know, we never talked about success or we talked about hard work and that, but success is still being here. I think that's it. Um, and then I have one last question for you and I'm going to let okay. you get on with your evening. Um, if I could put your 10-year-old self in front of you today, having been through everything you've been through throughout your mm. career and life in general, what's the biggest piece of advice you'd give your 10-year-old self moving forward in life? Try to get to know your parents better and ask them questions and try and get to know them better. Because my father died when he, he was 58, so I was just 20. And I can't really say anyone that well, you know what I mean? So try, try and appreciate your parents more. Well, I just want to take this time to say thank you so, so much for giving up your evening to chat to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks a million. Best of luck with your work. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, please rate, share, subscribe, and leave a comment if you like what you hear. And don't forget to follow at What It's Like Pod on Instagram and Facebook. To listen to Liveline and for more information on Joe's work, visit the links provided in the show notes. I'll be back next week with more inspiring stories, but for now, this has been What It's Like with Luce.